This is episode 13 of Fire in a Hole. Today's guest, Mr. James Malik, actor, editor, musician, uh, just multi-talented individual. And uh, what did we do today, Richard? We talked a bit about his Native American ancestry. Uh, growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and being an actor and the auditioning process. That's right. So uh, forget Johnny Depp, uh, and because we've got <laughs> the real deal. We've got the real, real deal in the house today. Fire in the hole. Fire in the hole. How do I act so well? What I do is I pretend to be the person I'm portraying in the film or play. Yeah. You're confused. No, it's it's definitely simple. Case in point, Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson comes from New Zealand, says to me, Sir Ian, I want you to be Gandalf the wizard. And I say to him, you are aware that I am not really a wizard. And he said, yes, I am aware of that. What I want you to do is to use your acting skills to portray the wizard for the duration of the film. So I said, okay. And then I said to myself, hmm, how would I do that? And this is what I did. I imagined what it would be like to be a wizard. And then I pretended and acted in that way on the day. condition i will now be podcasting with this voice <laughs> episode 13 episode 13 oh my god is it friday uh is it no no it's not thank god it's the lucky episode because james is here that's right <laughs> did you guys hear that that's what that's just what just happened okay so welcome look, james welcome james and thank i'm going to massacre your name now or not i have a history of getting this wrong um james malik that's it. Is that it? Is, did I say it correctly? It, you Malik. said it very well. Although it's actually a Scottish name, so if you were from Scotland, you'd say Malach. Malach. Yeah, I, I was tempted, but then I was like, that might be insensitive. Uh, so I'm just not going to go there. He but mulled it over. He mulled it over. <laughs> he mull of Kintyre it over. James Malach. Is that your full name? Uh, my middle name is Brant, uh-huh. which is actually... Uh, uh, in reference to Joseph Brandt, who was a famous Mohawk chief, because he, oh. I am, I am like a great, 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 great grandson of Joseph Brandt. Are you kidding? Yeah. Really? So that so uh, Mohawk, right? The Mohawk that's, tribe. That's right. Yeah. So uh, okay. Well, I obviously knew you were. Uh, you had some Native American heritage somewhere. Uh, yes, my grandfather was born and raised uh, on the Six Nations Reserve near Brantford, and. Um, then and he was he was one of the first ever native graduates um in fact the first native graduate of queen's university whoa so uh that's pretty major yeah he was a he was he was a cool guy he was an engineer he went into mining and engineering he was a metals expert and uh let's see he he actually he signed up to fight in the first world war but he got 
like influenza or something when he got there, so they never made it to the front lines by the time the war finished. And then in the Second World War, he was all ready to go over and fight, and the government said mm, two things. First of all, you've got a, uh, your hand is badly injured from a mining accident, so that counts you. But also, we need you more for your metals knowledge than we do to have you in the, in the trenches or the fields or whatever. So they, they put him to work uh, as part of the uh, resources team going to find metals for the war effort. That's the best introduction we've ever had, Richard. <laughs> I think you might be right. That was that was that was an amazing introduction. And <laughs> we just went and right my, into it. And on my father's side, my my father's father was a medic in the First World War. Uh, he served with the Red Cross in Belgium, and then went on to become a doctor. So wow, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So I feel so bad for like the uh, the post millennial generations where like my dad was a blogger. <laughs> and uh, my mother had a health food store. Uh, we sold chia, flaxseed. I think this is what these generations, right? Like everyone's like benefiting from these previous generations that all like gave their lives and their time and just had to get it together, right? Because there was no choice. So that's great. I mean, this is, uh, as I was mentioning to you before the show started, uh, that at some point we should totally have you back um, and also Mark DeLille. Um, because you have more, see, I, I sort of had this intuition that you had these things in common with them. Mm. And so you're kind of, um, you, you have like some military people in your family too, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, even, and my dad signed up to fight in the Second World War, but he was actually too young to be sent overseas. Right. He lied about his age to get into the army when he was 17. Uh -huh. He thought, oh, yeah, I'm in. That's pretty common from what I understand. And so he, so they, the army thought he was 18, but it wasn't until after he got into the army that they told him, uh, you have to be 19 to actually get sent overseas. Oh. So yeah. he was training in Camp Crowder, Missouri, uh, with a unit that was supposed to be sent to the Pacific because by 1945, the war in Europe was winding down. So they sent him... All Canadian units were going to get sent to the Pacific, but they were going to train on American equipment. So he was in Camp Crowder, Missouri, when when the atomic bombs went off, and they so he never got sent overseas to the other theater. We're talking either. about like Hiroshima. Yeah. Okay, and uh, Nagasaki I think yeah. was the other one. Okay, all right. So where where were you born exactly? You you said on the six. No, my grandfather was okay. born on you, Six Nations, you. but I was born in Montreal. Okay, born uh, born and raised Montreal. Where in what part of Montreal? Uh, I was born in Lower Westmount. Okay. Uh, my dad was had already gotten a job as a teacher at McGill by the time I was born. And I grew up, I was one of the last generations of Anglos to not be put in French immersion. Oh, is that right? So we had maybe, you know, an hour or two of French instruction per week. And that was like, that was the old... Westmount Anglo thing. The, the, the last crust. Yeah. The last crust of Anglo Anglo. Exactly. And so shortly after I graduated from grade school, then only then did they start putting kids in, in like in French immersion. Mm. So um, that's gonna be interesting for you from not only in Anglo but with native heritage where being forced to learn things is is kinda got like a pretty dark history. Right? Yeah, I mean I never uh, I never knew anyone who went through residential school. I, <clears throat> I didn't have to go through it myself. But um, you know, obviously, that's a that's a that's a dark cloud that's hung over a lot of people who not only went through the schools, but even their relatives 
suffered from the fact that their parents went through residential school, either because they lost their language or because they just got, you know, they got abused and whatever. It just like it damaged an awful lot of people. That's the, I mean, the, the, the repercussions of the, that, that forced state stuff is just starting to come to light, right, in the yeah. last couple of years. And it's, and it's one thing people don't know is that the natives weren't the only people to be uh, to have their kids pulled out of their family and sent to that, like it happened to you know, religious groups like the Dukabors and uh, the Dukabors. Where are they? Uh, they were out west. They were. Um, I, I don't know their history very well, but they're like, they were like a, a religious sect, like a had, Mormon type situation. Yeah, yeah, um, and they had their kids pulled out of, pulled away from their families and sent away to schools as well. So okay. For reprogramming? For reprogramming, yeah. Right. My sister's my sister's husband, my sister married a, a Dene guy at the north of Ontario. He had to go through residential school. And he Dene actually, is another tribe, right? Dene, yeah. It's, okay. a, it's a nation in the north of Alberta. Okay. And um, he told me this amazing story of how he was like seven or eight years old in the school and he was being yelled at by the nuns one of whom actually picked him up, not by his shirt, but by, actually grabbed the skin on his chest and lifted him up and he punched her right in the face. Oh, shit. And shortly thereafter ran away from the school and basically survived in the woods. Okay, that just won for the bullying story of the year, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because we've been, uh, sorry to put you in contact, James, uh, bullying stories have been sort of naturally coming up as a, as a subject oh, yeah. every podcast yeah. or lately. And it turns out that everybody has one. Right, uh, that sounded. That sounds to me like wow. <laughs> did did you ever not want to be the victim there? Did you yeah. ever declare your uh, your 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 place? Jeez. So he. I, I don't know all the details of how he survived or how what old, happened after. How old would he have been at this? Like somewhere around eight or nine years old. Jesus. Yeah. And then just survived. Where like like out in the, well, I mean, I guess he grew up knowing how to survive in the woods, and he and he ran away. I don't know for how long, but. Um, Bad stuff. But you know, he's 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 the kind of guy who's been he's been hunting and actually eating his game for many years. What you know? a difference that makes! Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, pretty amazing, pretty amazing story. So um, now, obviously, in North America, everybody has you know. Again, we often like to get to the bottom of stereotypes and challenge them and things like that, right? Um, so, as far as I can. Th- think of in north america there's probably probably the first two big stereotypes right are the cowboys and indians um right that that's probably one of the first big ones yeah right uh if you go really far from north america you'll go to like europe or africa or asia you know that type of culture um those are some of the cliches that have made it as as far as that i remember talking to an african fellow who went to school in africa in a french system and uh he said that even though they learned all this French culture because of the colonization, uh, during recess, all they played was cowboys and Indians because of uh, all the spaghetti westerns, the Clint Eastwood films. And that that's basically was one of the first exports. Yeah. Have you seen that film, Real Engine? Uh, Spelled R-E-E-L, Engine. It's, uh, it rings a bell. Yeah, it was a, it was a film produced by Resolution Pictures, a documentary on the image of... The native person throughout Hollywood films. It's I got to see pretty that. intense. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a really I, I've heard the name, but I don't think I've watched. Okay, so it addresses this very thing. Yeah, and it's got a lot of it's got a lot of humor to it too. It's not sure. all like you know, dead serious. But yeah, it's a that's you're you're right about the stereotypes. So there. 
And I mean, cowboy, the cowboy culture is still very much alive and well in the States in the form of don't touch my gun. Right. You know, that's it's as though the States has never dropped the Wild West. Right. Except that there's none of none of the actual like that way of life is gone. Um, They're not there's no fucking cows anywhere. (laughs) Don't tell a Texan that. Right. It's it's all like they've just kept the it's like as if people in Egypt were walking around with like crooks and you know like uh, pharaoh hats <laughs> on their heads and be like i'm a pharaoh alberta's still a bit like that too right like they still go around with the 10 gallon hats and the spurs mm-hmm. and the even though they're not riding horses they've yeah. got the chaps on and ford f-150 stereotypes die hard man i remember back in even in grade school in roslyn in here in montreal i remember in grade four in the textbooks they had you know chapters on cultures from around the world and one of them was called bunga the jungle boy Oh my God! And it was, it wasn't like I'm triggered. <laughs> triggered. It, it, it was, it was. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think of it now. But it was, Bunga. you know, this is uh, this is African culture, and it was. It, who knows? Maybe 300 years ago, it was an accurate depiction of, of, various African cultures or whatever. But yeah. you know, this is this was in the 1960s. Yeah. And you're thinking like, even even at that tender age of eight or nine, I'm looking at this going like. I don't know, man. Doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel right. (laughs) I don't think Bungas still makes. If you go to if you go to Africa, I'm sure you'll. There are still villages with thatched roofs and you know. But it's like they've also got the cell phones and the you know. It's not like a lot. Some of it is now just for show, right? And uh, if you if like you've studied early uh, early cinema. Uh, when the uh, Europeans started to travel all the world with with the cameras and and started to do this kind of um, safari filming, you know, mm. like going to see the Inuits and going to see the 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 Bunga tribe or whatever <laughs> at, at the other end of the earth. Uh, a lot of times they got there, realized those people weren't actually doing that stuff anymore, but staged it anyway, and got the locals to sort of give them a little show. Uh, you know, uh, Buffalo Bill style, so they could bring it back to the to the scared sort of insulated uh, Europeans, and they could gawk like, oh, "Look at this savage tribe!" And this is their mating ritual, and then yeah. so that just reinforced these. It's just such a, it's like a, such a like a romantic uh, view of of I guess a byproduct of civilization. You know, people living in cities, and then you know, you like look at Tarzan. You know, yeah. like that that just captured the imagination. Uh, uh, cowboys and Indians, the same thing. It's just like this mystique. Yeah. Well, Tarzan, it, you know, Tarzan specifically was part of a movement in cinema where the um, entertainment industry was capitalizing on the 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 fear of the dark uh, skinned abduction scenario. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of these films had like Tarzan was very much, but like we, he's a hero because he, he's he's a white guy that was lost right and then he grew up and then we can accept him back into the fold because he's still white right but there was this very prevalent sort of it was like a little ghost story of being taken away by the the dark evil indian who like came through your tent right and took you away took away your women and this was a a theme that continually came back raised by wolves raised by wolves um being taken to like a sacrificial you know, by some crazy tribe in the middle of the jungle and they were going to sacrifice you and then the hero came along. And Indiana Jones, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's where that came from. Yeah. So, um... It's also a device for us to look back at ourselves, I guess, right? Somebody outside of our culture to come in and say, like, oh, that's weird that you have 
this thing. Yeah. Or like marveling over like uh, flushing toilets or stuff that we take for granted. It ties into uh, white man's burden, uh, imperialist kind of outlooks, right? This idea that even good meaning, well-meaning people really came to believe that the white man's sort of goal or or burden on this earth is to elevate the lower races and you know we could enjoy their music and their colorful dances and their colorful costumes but eventually and this brings us back to the schools the state-run schools right um is we needed to elevate them and get them to stop talking that that mumbo jumbo that like bush stuff and elevate them to the height of the european pure purity it was it was it was such a patronizing matronizing attitude that um like just nobody picked up on it, right? And it made its way into cinema, and then of course, cowboys and Indians, cowboys and Indians, right? So I guess the reason I brought this up, James, is because if even though I've been I've lived here for thirty years, uh, I know very little about the Mohawk Nation in terms of is are we on their land right now? Is this is this Mohawk land ancestrally, like where we live? Well, dating back at least several hundred hundred years, yeah, because the original Mohawk territory was actually in the United States. It was actually an upper New York state. It was the original, original Mohawk land. And um, uh, as, you know, as dating back to the American Revolution, Native people were very often forced to choose between the American revolutionaries or the British. And so the Mohawks ended up allying themselves with the British. And so because of the way the war turned out, they all they got forced north. And so, you know, in return for their military service that the crown granted them specific reserves of <clears throat> reserves of land, some of which have been stolen back since. It, there's, a, there's a big chunk of Ontario territory that was basically appropriated during World War II from the Mohawks and never got given back. But, um, but uh, this guy, Joseph Brandt, was actually one of the military leaders of the Mohawks during the time of the American Revolution. So, And this is who you're descended from. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, there, there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of debate within the Mohawk community as to whether he was a good guy or a bad guy because he, he ended up negotiating a certain deal with the Brits to take a certain chunk of land. And, you know, he basically convinced people to move north and, and to stick with the British. And so it didn't turn out so well as far as the original ancestral lands are concerned. Right. So it got very complicated. And, um, and so, the, so the Mohawks ended up getting displaced from their original territory in New York. Um, but uh, anyway, so now they're, they're spread out over these several different reserves from, from Brantford to, you know, to Montreal and... Uh, so yeah, it's. Um, it's is a it true that story. the Mohawks were were uh, more nomadic rather than sedentary? Uh, no, Mohawks were actually among the more agriculturally advanced. They were actually oh, really? weren't. They weren't terribly nomadic as far as like uh, they weren't like. They weren't like the Western nations. Um, the Western nations had to move around a lot in order to follow the food sources, which was buffalo and things. But but Mohawks were more. Uh, sort of agriculturally advanced. I mean, they did sedentary, hunting. Sedentary is that the word? Sedentary. 
Is that when you're more stationary? I, I believe so, yeah. Right, okay. Oh, okay. Because sedentary to sedentary to me now means like you sit around and you don't do much. Right. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, but originally in the hunter-gatherer societies, okay. right? Sedentary, basically people who like put down work. roots and yeah. farm. Right, yeah, but, but because of their because of their geographic location, the, the, like the farming land was really good, and so they were, you know, they would grow a lot of uh, corn and rice and veggies and stuff in addition to hunting. Okay. So that's so. cool. Wow, so to, and that's to, partly what contributed to the design of the Mohawk Longhouse was the fact that, you know, the, um, the nation tended to kind of stay put. They didn't have to roam around, so they could, in fact, build more permanent structures. So okay. that's one of the things that contributed to the design of that. So for anyone under 30, uh, a Mohawk Longhouse is something you'd see in uh, Assassin's Creed 3. <laughs> <laughs> They were, yeah, they were, they were in fact like, they were like an elongated barn-shaped uh -huh. structure. With like a weird something. like spiral wall, right? Like you had to sort uh, of... Well, it was kind of a, they were kind of tall with an oval roof and they could be hundreds of feet long uh, and they had, you know, fires in the center of the of the uh, structure to but, but keep that, people wait, warm. that doesn't make sense so don't indians live in teepees right like <laughs> out west they do, and this is the thing you see in teepee was designed as a mobile command center as a mobile <laughs> shelter because right. makes because sense. the you, you know like the crow nation uh, you know the, for example the crow nation they were they were um, one of the originators of the teepee and they they had to be able to move around they had to be very mobile to follow the buffalo um, and then eventually groups. run from the <laughs> From the white man. Well, that came in handy too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And for those, again, wanting to see this stuff, they'd have to watch uh, Dances with Wolves, probably. Was that <laughs> the Sioux? The Sioux. I believe it was the Sioux, yeah. Am I pronouncing that correctly? The Sioux? The Sioux Nation? Uh, yeah. And so the Mohawk are... See, this is the thing I don't understand. Are they a tribe or are they a collection of tribes? Well, they're, they're one of... They're one nation that made up the... Uh, they they used to be at war with their neighbors and then at a certain point i forget exactly which year but there was uh um they basically got together with four other nations to create the original iroquois confederacy iroquois is a term the meaning a confederacy of nations and it was one of the things that influenced um it's something that benjamin franklin actually studied when they when he he and a bunch of other guys were putting together it the original like the united nations yeah you know united states constitution mm -hmm. they basically they studied the iroquois confederacy to see like how does this work how do you guys have states that are together but they're a nation but they're allied like how does this work you know that's interesting and you, you never hear about that how you know you just have this sort of perception that the white man brought all these like organizational ideas to the, to to north you know to the indian but yeah but the, but the iroquois confederacy existed before the united states or canada's political system did so okay cool so there you go That's but i'm cool. i mean i'm not really an expert on these things i just remember bits and pieces well you are history. our expert today and <laughs> in this room you're certainly the most qualified person to talk about these things i, I find this super fascinating um, i remember at some point learning this stuff but i just just not part of my day to day, so I don't know. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I mean, we live right here on what used to be. Um, I'd like to know more about and it. And like, has did this ever come up once in in school ever? Yeah, it definitely did. Really? In the Canadian history classes, it did. But I mean, that that was so, such a long time ago. I don't. I don't remember hearing anything about about. And then all that knowledge has been just replaced with uh, movie knowledge. 
Right. You know? And social media <laughs> passwords. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. So you, you were born in Westmount and uh, you, you went to school here and then you basically you grew up here. I grew up here, but I, uh, I've, I've always had this theory that I was born at exactly the right time. As far as, as, far as pop culture history is concerned, I was born at exactly the right time. I was Wh- born in 1959. Uh-huh. And when I was about four years old, my dad, who was a teacher at McGill, had a sabbatical. And we actually lived in England for a year. And we arrived in Liverpool. I was going to say Liverpool. I don't know why. We arrived in Liverpool, Liverpool in June of 1963, right at the height of Beatlemania. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> and lived there for a year. Um, so I, as a four-year-old, my, like my earliest memories of life were as a four-year-old watching the Beatles and Stones become famous on shows like Ready, Steady, Go and Top of the Pops and 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 and before anyone in North America had even heard of them. They had no them. idea who these people were at this time. had no idea who they were, but I was, we were listening to Beatles tracks and, and the Kinks and Herman's Hermits and the Dave Clark Five. All these bands were, these were my earliest memories of life, you know, this watching is, this. And this music is still influencing like a very, very big portion. Absolutely. Of the music. They were like, it's classical. It's pretty generally recognized as pretty classical pop music now. Um, so these were my earliest memories of life, and so that was really cool. Did it make you want to play music at all? Uh, later on it did, yeah. Later on, because those, all those songs were just etched in my brain from a very early age, right? That sounds and, like a song title, by the way, Etched in My Brain. I just wanted to mention that in case. We'll have to write that song. <laughs> so, um, yes. So we spent a year in England, and we also kind of toured around Europe in the summer of 64, so that was uh, gave me a taste of... Uh, you know, uh, Italy and Yugoslavia and uh, France and Switzerland and all that stuff. Came back in 1966 when I was seven years old, the first ever Batman television series came out. And if there was ever a time to be seven years old, oh my God. it was then. Because that was the, the most... I can still remember the very, very first episode of Batman and how it ended with, uh, you know... Bruce Wayne or Bruce Wayne as Batman was tied on a conveyor belt heading towards a furnace. Oh yeah, and it was yeah, like, yeah. and it stopped there, and you had to be back same bat time, same bat, same channel. bat, bat channel. channel. And, yeah, and uh, the but next that was day, a, that, that was a, that was a formula too that was very alive in the television format, mm-hmm. right? There's these serials yeah. with the like, well, our hero make it like that came from radio, I think, right? <laughs> Yeah. Is this the end for the Rocket Man? And right, you'll have to tune in next so that time. That was cool. Also, the very first, the, the the original Avengers, the British Avengers series. Oh yes, yeah. Miss came uh, out around that same time, around sixty five, sixty six, and that was my my the, the image of Diana Rigg in a tight fitting yes. leather bodysuit doing martial arts moves. That that was that also got cemented in my brain clearly i mean this would give rise to the Catwoman. that's when i realized i was fully heterosexual (laughs) oh wow you know it's it's a coincidence for me it was the baroness from from the gi joe cartoons is that right and she dressed exactly the same way she also wore a leather bodysuit and did karate kicks uh, and had a weird accent which which i think was vaguely russian but anyway so yeah that that'll do it so that and also uh, i mean you know the 60s was like the most amazing time to be a kid because mm-hmm. it was a very it had the whole decade had this kind of weird childlike innocence about it because old old methods of 
conveying pop culture were being turned upside down and being replaced by colorful, you know, acid-laced stuff like Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In and, uh, right. and, you know, the Monkees TV show came out. and uh, Yeah, that made a huge splash, right? Yeah, it was like, uh, you know, and everything was kind of, kind of controlled lunacy or fun lunacy was the order of the day. And so that was a perfect time to be seven or eight years old. For sure. It was when all this great stuff was kind of exploding across. Like even the... adults are being kids at this point. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because they were repressed for so long under this uh, like 50s, 40s uh, and, starchiness. And all, you know, think of all the, all the music that came out in the mid 60s. Like I remember Jimi Hendrix's first albums because uh, I, I had older brothers and sisters who would bring home all the cool music of the day. So I remember, mm -hmm. the, you know, hearing Jimi Hendrix, all the Stones and Beatles records that kept coming out uh the birds all this psychedelic stuff and was it as exciting as it is remembered now because oh, oh yeah well it was especially like if you're if you're a kid of seven years old i mean it's just this stuff was amazing and i wasn't even on drugs yet you okay know, so. <laughs> his mind was your little mind was blown it, my little mind was blown plus i mean james brown was at his apex then oh, it was yeah. uh, all the all this incredible the motown, motown yeah. stuff because until Shit. then all you're hearing is like jingles right and, and yeah. like uh, sort of safe little Beach Boys type stuff, or what? What was the yeah. order? Well, of the I mean, I, our our family was uh, we I had a pretty cool family, so we listened to all the cool music, but we would also giggle at all the you know the the, the Pat Boone TV type TV shows that the, were still the, on the at that time. Stuff. <laughs> so uh, and Expo '67. I was eight years old when Expo '67 happened. That was absolutely phenomenal because back in those days it was. You know, this was all about the future, right? And, and in those Jetsons, days, yeah. people looked forward to the future. They didn't dread the future. Like the future wasn't this it wasn't apocalyptic. Dread. It wasn't dread. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't this apocalyptic thing that's going to come and swallow us up and treat us badly. You're was, right. There was a complete yeah, optimism. It was like everyone, th like we're going to be landing on the moon soon, you know? And, and like this, the Jetsons. Yeah, the Jetsons. And the, but all the pavilions and La Ronde. I mean, La Ronde was brand new. Yeah. And you know, to be a kid of that age and to be to be plunged into that world and that like atmosphere and that attitude—it's all just, being built around you, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so that was cool. And then, uh, you know, in the in the in the early '70s, when I was going to high school, the, that's when all the art rock started coming out. Like Shom FM, believe it or not, Shom FM used to play really interesting music back in the I early 70s. <laughs> they used to play really experimental stuff. Like they used to play... Uh, like Genesis you know, uh, and stuff Yeah, like Genesis that. and all these all these really obscure art rock bands like the Strobs and yeah, um, Genesis and... Uh, yeah, Genesis, and, and, by the way, used to be really weird before they became like a like a top 40s band. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they were out there, man. They were super psychedelic. But also, they used to play a lot of um like that was also the heyday of quebecois musical culture like Armagnam and those guys Armagnam and Beaudemage and uh and you know Lucien Franca doing out shows and uh all this stuff used to be played on Shom as well um cool who else uh, so there was just like a renaissance on all yeah, levels yeah Diane Dufresne and uh, uh um, oh god some of the names escape me now but but really really like that was when the Quebecois artists were very. They had. They. They all seem to have really original voices. You know. Nowadays Jerry it Boulet. seems. Is that too early? Sorry. Jerry Boulet was was he around that? Uh, well, that was sort of more mid seventies, I think, when uh, when Offenbach really made okay. a splash. But um, 
But certainly, I bet they used to play a lot of Charlebois and right. a lot of. Uh, this is Quebec kind of going through its puberty, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is something that uh, this, this is something that um, my friend Daniel Richley pointed out in an interview was that the seventies was kind of Quebec's cultural heyday. It was when is when the culture really exploded in a new way, almost almost the way Britain did in the sixties or something, you know. So, so Sean was playing all this amazing stuff in the early 70s. So that I was exposed to all of that. Um, of course, they would also play glam rock, which was cool. But it was a really, really cool mixture of stuff. Um, so that was a good time to be in your early teens because you're absorbing all this weird new... It's all new. Kind of, it's, it's all, all new, new, unheard of stuff. Kraftwerk. They used to play Kraftwerk. Really? Like really early Kraftwerk, not even the more commercial type stuff but like the really early experimental craft you never stuff. play this stuff now it would, it would no. never it doesn't work with the whole corporate radio um, schemes yeah of and then time and stuff. of course in the mid 70s 76 77 all, all of a sudden punk exploded by that time i was like 16 or 17 so i was the perfect age Jesus, again yeah. perfect <laughs> age to be a punk was like 16 or 17 <laughs> all of a sudden there's the sex pistols and the vibrators and and the you know the undertones and I'm detecting uh, a pattern <laughs> and Richard Hell and the Voidoids, all this stuff. They, and Shom was playing that too. Like Shom, Shom wow. actually played the Vibrators hit singles when they first came out, and they would uh, play Sex Pistols. Well, like, radio used to be cool and edgy and stuff, right? You used to have these like disc jockeys that were kind of personalities, but like the whole corporate machine wasn't behind it yet. Mm-hmm. If I understand correctly, internet of its time. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just like they. they like clearly a corporation or a company owned the station and everything but there wasn't all this like tie-in depends, and marketing it depends who buys them up right because Shom started off originally as ckgm fm extremely underground very experimental and then as it got more and more hip all the companies the media companies would come along and buy it out and then it would get bought out, bought out by this company and that company so but in the early days, it was actually a really cool station. CKGM. I haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know about that. No, I, I, I barely. Maybe something like a, there's a fragment in my memory somewhere. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so this is you know James so that, Malick, man of his time. And and the seventies. Don't forget, people associate the seventies with disco. I didn't. I wasn't really into disco R. There's another so much cliche. Of, you're right. But seventies was the big huge decade for reggae. Okay. And I got into, my sister got me into Bob Marley right around seven, 75 or 76, right about the time when Rastaman Vibration came out. I was, I'm, I feel very lucky that I got to see Bob Marley from the second row at the Montreal Forum what? in like 1978 or something. And it was just, oh, it's wow. one of the most amazing concerts that I ever saw in my life. Jeez, uh, I mean, just from the footage I've seen, it's, it, it was almost like, uh, some people have described it as like, it was re- like almost religious. Yeah. Well, he was a very religious guy, but he was also a very smart, savvy pop artist. I mean, he was a really, really good songwriter. And he, he grew up, he was influenced a lot by Motown. Because uh, when, when, in, in the 60s, Jamaica, could they, they picked up all the sounds from the States, from the Florida stations playing all the Motown stuff. So his, he, he really absorbed all that songwriting skill. And his songs, they, they stood the test of time, right? They're really like... Yeah, in uh, my time anyway. Very, very melodic. His lyrics were great. Uh, amazing singing voice. And so I felt, I feel really privileged to be able to have seen him live, you know. Well, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I, I don't, 
I don't think there was a single party that I, you could go to in my in my day where somebody didn't put on the goddamn Legends album at some point. <laughs> oh, like yeah. it was the most heavily rotated. Until we all know it every every, every word track, of it, but it's still just amazing. It's I mean it's great. Yeah, but it just it was it, it dominated everything. Right? So I was in my late teens when Marley came out. That was a great time to be uh, you know discovering. Uh, Ganja weed and going to see Bob Marley, you know, at the Montreal Forum, Mantine. <laughs> and uh, so that led into the to the early '80s, and in the early '80s, of course, there was this another new musical explosion of new wave electronic pop music that ruled the waves and ruled the clubs. So, what are some bands like? Uh, well, you know, Eno. all the all the all the famous. Like electro bands like the Human League, and of course, I witnessed the birth of Men Without Hats here in Montreal from their very early days to the time when they became big on the charts. Um, you know, there was um, these are guys you know. Yeah, yeah, I actually played with some of them uh, later on in in uh, on in live live bands. But I mean, in those early days, it was yeah, Human League, uh, Devo, uh, Oingo Boingo, all these all these weird like you know obscure bands that were suddenly becoming famous because MTV was starting up and so all of a sudden you had this new kooky. distribution yeah. network uh, even if they weren't playing them on radio you could you could hear them on MTV so they they got famous one way or the other that way uh and so the club scene in the early 80s was really cool because it was a, it was the perfect time to be 22 or 23 because you got all these new wave bands it was great new sounds great new dance music Incredible new styles, you know, the, the, the ladies were in their cute mini skirts and, and new wave hairdos and <laughs> and uh, it was it was a great time to be going out clubbing, right? Because this was pre-internet, like people actually went out <laughs> to clubs and actually danced and they didn't just... They just try to film, make shitty films of the show. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, and by the way, no AIDS, no herpes... Uh -huh. It's a great time to be 22. Actually. Right. <laughs> wild time, baby. Jeez, I can't even imagine that. Just like, well, I mean, then the AIDS was made, but no, not by the generous. But I'm saying, yeah, like just that kind of free. Oh, yeah, I see what it you're saying. Me. It wasn't me. It wasn't man. me. It wasn't me. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, uh, no, no cell phones, no social media, on a sort of related note, I was just reading about uh, Dave Chappelle and how he's coming back. He's making a comeback. Yeah. Um, and he's starting to tour again. And Didn't he just do like a whole bunch of nights at uh, at the Just for Laughs Fest? Yes, but summer? he's always yeah. been sort of like clandestinely doing it, right? Like he, he they keep asking him if he's back full on. Mm -hmm. But in the comedy world, until you do a special, you're not really back, right? You're just doing gigs. Mm -hmm. uh, but now he's going on a tour or doing a, a gig. And uh, he teamed up with a, um, a startup company, a tech company. That's developed this like little pouch that they can hand out to uh, people as they come in to the show, and they have to put their cell phones in it, and it all electronically it locks. It locks all the phones inside the pouch. You can't take them out of the pouch. They like through Wi-Fi. They lock the pouches auto lock, and during the show you can't take out your phone. You just cannot for that hour and a half, two hours. You're in there, and that's it. You got to listen to the show. In a, I've heard from several comedians that that's it's becoming a serious problem for comedians to develop new material 
because in the old days comedians would go to a club they would show up unexpectedly and just work their new material to see what went over well and what didn't or they can't they can't workshop their they can't workshop it now because now everybody tapes everything that happens and puts it out on youtube the next day and so if if a, if their humor isn't properly developed, or if they if they do something that's too risque, or something they regret, they can't like they can't take it back because right. you know, they don't have the control on being yeah. able to distribute it at their own pace. Exactly, the workshop so, is gone. So okay. I understand I understand why he would insist. I on think that, this right? should become a thing. I personally like yeah. I'm, I'm not usually for taking things away from people, but that's one of the situations where I feel people, people need with, to be people with their cell phones are so fucking annoying, man. Yeah. I like I annoy myself. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're just we're all we're all used to being available all the time, and like people get upset if you don't reply to their text immediately. But if you're if you're out at a show, it's how distracting is it? Like you see like like this ocean of just bright screens. No, man. I mean, like, like go like, go to enough. a rock show. I just went to a show like a couple of weeks ago, and yeah. I think that particular band is really liked. So there's an interaction with the singer. So like the people had their arms up and everything, but there was still like a contingent of dickwads off to the side with their iPhone six pluses. Jesus, like Christ. in the crotch of the guy playing guitar. Yeah, like it's one They're thing. They're all making their own music video. Like fuck off. Seriously, like it's a really like, weird compulsion because you know I don't know what these people what do you get out of think it? they're gonna they're, they think that they're gonna capture the moment. So right. that they can replay it late, but it doesn't work that way. And that means you're not present in that moment. Exactly. When you when you hold up your iPhone, what you're really saying to everyone around you is, "I'm not here." Yeah. Yeah. I'm not here at the moment. Or I but you can be, leave a message. I mean, it's lunacy. I prefer to be watching this on TV because you're just you're filtering it, your experience through this little screen. But it's it's a rock show. You came yeah. to hear the songs, and there is no phone that can record the sound of a of a rock show in any sort of decent way no all you're gonna get is like shaky cam and and like what you're gonna call your buddies over and watch it over chips no you're gonna put it up on facebook to show people how dope your life is but like 12 other twelve thousand other assholes just do the same thing yeah so i read this really good um like uh, article it was like a letter to, from a, a wedding photographer to all those fucking people at the weddings that are all trying to do their own recording and like all these examples of pictures where like the family members are in the way because like the, he's trying to take a picture of like uh, the the groom as as like the the wife is like walking down the aisle and there's all these people in the aisle all trying to take their own their own videos and pictures like can you just let me do my fucking job already because all your stuff's gonna look like shit and you're just you're ruining everything it's ridiculous you know like all the aunts and uncles are all trying to get their own videos like what is the psychology behind that why are you doing that you just i was at a play the other night and somebody's like recording the play right the right the and of course in a really dark theater when you light up your iphone and record something it broadcasts this big light oh, fuck, yeah. backwards right and it's completely distracting. Or people with their iPads. Oh yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, there's a lot of people with i like recording filming with, with video with their iPads. Now they've lit up the whole row, <laughs> and they're just coming out with a bigger iPad. So this is just about to get worse. Just think about sitting in in a movie theater and somebody brings out their phone. And you're like, come on, man. 
Put it away. Yeah, I don't know that. Honestly, that doesn't really bother me. If I don't hear it buzz, if someone wants to like tap away on their phone next to me, like honestly, don't care that much. But if the screen is pointing towards you in any way, then you have this light shining. Yeah, it's something that people don't really understand. They don't understand that they're disturbing people behind them, even if they're not making noise. Right. Because it's you know your eye is automatically drawn to this sudden bright light coming, and it's just right. Still relatively new. I think people just are not aware of it i can the etiquette hasn't developed yet i don't think it's going to develop until we take just take it away yeah right so maybe the pouches are the the right idea everywhere i just get those pouches out i fully support this idea yeah pouches Mm. pouches 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 (laughs) no i mean uh i can see i can see uh you know uh, somebody making a lot of money out of figuring this i mean the tech company is literally tackling this now because this is an issue and uh, I just, I mean, during a play, are you kidding me, James? Like, I'm on that stage performing. Uh, I would, like, leap off the stage and strangle whoever was doing that. Or just, like, take it away and then, like, do something with it. And you, you see it happen, right? You see yeah. kind of performers crack. Yeah. I think it, it. there were a couple of stories of it on Broadway, I think. A couple of big-name actresses or whatever, like, snapped during a performance and just started berating Mm. You know, front row tourists with their stupid phones, uh, you know, filming a show that may have taken six months to set up to a year, you know, to rehearse and to perfect. And then here you go. Billy Bob wants to do a video or Joanne wants to do a video mm. on her shitty phone that she doesn't even know how to download to a computer. Right. Somebody just showed her how to take a picture with it. So now she's taking <laughs> pictures, she's taking pictures. Have you, have, have you and and some clearly no I think you're onto something Richard the etiquette today I saw something that was very interesting well it wasn't that interesting but it was curious and it ties into what we're talking about I was sitting in a food court uh, I was having lunch with my mom and this guy just came out of nowhere he looked like this young guy and he didn't even have a phone he had like a little cam you know like one of those little cameras where like the lens sort of electronically comes out when you activate the camera those I don't mm-hmm. even know what they're called. Those little Sony cameras. And he's just going one by one and taking pictures of all of the restaurants, of the booths. But, like, there's people standing behind the counter, like, serving food and, like, cutting shawarma or whatever, doing their thing. And he just, like, walked up and he's, like, four or five feet away from the counter. And they're just kind of looking at him like, oh, uh, you know, can we help you? Or would you like something to eat? Or they they assume he's looking at the menu and... He just was going up and like clicking a picture and then just walking to the next restaurant and then clicking another picture until, of course, he went to the Shishtok one. And then, God bless my Lebanese brethren who were like, hey, <laughs> the fuck are you doing? Come here, boy. <laughs> Come here. What are you doing? What are you doing? And the guy's like, oh, I just take it. Okay, well, you know, you need to ask for permission. You know, like hmm. you can't just do that. Right. You can't just take pictures of people like that. Not anymore. You know, once upon a time, maybe when there were 10 assholes in the city walking around with film stock, chances are it costs, there was a buy-in, you were a photographer very likely, or minimum you were a student. Even then, if you're a photographer, you still need, there's an etiquette involved. There's an etiquette, know? right? An actual photographer will, you know, will usually ask if it's cool if you take a yeah. picture. But there was an innocent time. Or snap time. a picture and ask if, it's, if that was okay and offer to delete it or whatever. Sure, sure. Yeah, but I mean, there was also like this innocent, more innocent time before, right? Mm. With film stock, you couldn't, 
erase the photograph, right? right so right. you, there were these guys and these women that specialized in real life, every day. And it needs to be candid. Hmm. Exactly, old man sitting on a corner, guy having his conversation, etc. So, right. so yeah, I, that that reinforces your theory that clearly, as a society, we haven't had a com- a clear conversation about when it's okay during performances. That pisses me off. I don't know. People just can't help themselves. It's compulsive. Yeah, it's really compulsive. And it's it's a bit of the same thing as smoking. Have you noticed that? Like, when people when when somebody pulls out a cigarette, how everybody else who is a smoker pulls out a cigarette, right? As soon as somebody checks their texts, boom, it's, it's the same thing. Everyone else feels this like unconscious compulsion to check their messenger or their their text messages. Yeah, their Facebook. You ever, you ever catch somebody like take out their phone in the subway? Um, at a station where you know the reception is no, no good. Yeah. Like it's too deep. Mm-hmm. You clearly don't, they're not getting anything. And you can tell that they're kind of disappointed, but they're still like pressing the buttons, opening the apps. <laughs> you know that all of those apps require being <laughs> connected, connected to the internet. Yeah. But, and now they're kind of like, uh, I don't know, like a cow trying to like get past this wall, even though it knows it's there. <laughs> well, I remember when I did video courses, uh, they kept all the theorists stressed how how much your eyes get fed by the TV screen, whether there's anything on it or not. It's just the fact that you've got all these photons hitting your eyeballs. It's exciting to the eye. So even if there's nothing worthwhile looking at on your cell phone, people still feel compelled to pull it out. It's almost like having a. It's it is kind of like having a cigarette for your eyes or something. It's just it's yeah. just something you do because your eyes need that light. Yeah, right? they it's need like they need something flickering across a screen to keep them happy or whatever. The pretty yeah. shiny lights. Yeah, it's a weird compulsion, and it's it's a. It seems like a a great way for people to avoid real life, and you mentioned public transportation. Public transportation is a great example of that. You ever look around on a bus or on a, on a subway car and see how many people are just glued to their phones? Right. Just so that they don't have to look other people in the face? I sort of don't blame them. In a, it's a kind of a... It's, it's a, a weird environment. It's, it's weird, like being in an, ele- like an elevator. Like everyone looks at the numbers going up. You yeah. Know, you need somewhere to look. Yeah, and it's like... I don't know. People don't talk. Yeah. They're, they're cheek to cheek, face to face, especially in the rush hour. Yeah. You're literally face to face with your pits and your crotch in various people's <laughs> faces and you're like closer than you are with like potentially that you, closer than your girlfriend lets you get to her <laughs> on some on some days, you know? You're like face to like just crushed up against another human being and you're like doop to do, I'm just going to pretend to create a little wall here and be in my little But I mean the metro yeah. is so dreary anyway. Like it's such a It is. It's horrible. It's such a dreary. Can you imagine driving that fucking thing? Like being in the pilot booth, yeah, day in day out. There's not a lot. There's not. Re- you're not really driving anything. Yeah, that's right. They you kind of like flip, you flip this. the switch and you flip it off. No, apparently that's not even the case anymore. Oh no, you they, just click a button. And all like, they do is open the doors. I've had very, very oh, yeah? from the horse's mouth. I've heard this. Okay, that's a, that's a re- that must be a recent change because I remember hearing a few years ago about a guy who his dream was to. <laughs> drive the subway and when some guy went out and got his coffee or whatever he ran into the into the the front of the subway 
and then he took off like he, he like st- took off with the car yeah like he he's he started driving the, the subway in the same way like kramer on seinfeld started okay. driving the bus you know? really and he's like uh, what you made the stops like well they kept ringing the bell <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff okay so he he took off and he really wanted to do this and apparently he did a great job like they, they said no he, one noticed <laughs> well no he got arrested afterwards sure and probably got a slap on the wrist but they're like then he got uh, hired well, yeah what, exactly what do you even charge someone like that i guess reckless endangerment or something i don't i don't know it well, must be against some law but he did a he, apparently they said he did he did a really good job he took the turns a little hard but aside from that like he did fine that's amazing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> All right, listen to me. You're Nicolas Cage. No one can ever take that away from you. But after The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Bangkok Dangerous, Knowing, Ghostwriter, Next, Wicker Man, you need to be a little bit more selective about your films, Nikki. Selective, Gary? All right, for example, this just came in today. I've got it right here. You'd be playing a prisoner who asks if he can leave, and the warden says yes. And then I leave? Yeah, that's it. Not a very interesting story. So this is the kind of picture you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> I'm in. What'd you say? I said I'm in. I'm gonna let that one slide, Nick, but your reputation is at stake. You have to be a little bit more discerning. I like being in movies, Gary. For the benefit of our listeners, <laughs> uh, I was lucky enough to play the part of Dominic Duran, crime boss, in the film that Jason directed, The yeah. Punisher, No Mercy. Yes. That oh, was... you did a great job in that, man. Oh, thank you. It's The yeah. Punisher, No Mercy Connect, once again. <laughs> and that's a great that's a great opportunity for it. I wanted to actually do that as I bring up the fact that you uh, are a professional actor. Yeah. Um, I'm doing more auditions than gigs these days. but uh, So you're that's... a professional actor. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But okay. one, of the, one of the really uh, cool... Um, the things one of the cool things about that film was i remember the weekend that we shot that film here i was playing the part of a crime boss getting out of jail and coming back to his home roost and that very same weekend it was the same weekend that vinny rizzuto oh, got sure. released from prison in colorado and flew back to montreal where we were filming this who's like the he's the like not the gambino but he's the john Gotti of or was the john Gotti of of montreal right exactly and uh so in the days leading up to the filming they were you know this was a huge news story right and and i was still trying to figure out like how is this character going to walk what's he what's what's going to be his physical language you know And on the news, they were, you know, how the news channels, they play loops of video while they talk, while they yak about this guy coming out of jail. They would play these loops. And they played this one loop of Vinny Rizzuto strolling into the Palais de Justice. Like the city hall or or the court. the the, the, The city courthouse. Yes. As if he owned the place. And it was this really kind of lazy, arrogant stroll. Like, I know how this works. I I know how this works. Yeah, come check out my court. Come, come out, check out my courtroom here. It's They've got a, nothing on me over yeah. here. I got this judge over here. Anyway, just the way he walked, it was. Like, I looked at this. I thought this is perfect. This really? is Dominic Duran. I'm gonna. <laughs> I just swiped his walk. <laughs> I remember the so perfect. him. <laughs> it was so perfect that I just thought, why, why look anywhere else? You know, that's great. <laughs> and you abused our good friend uh, Giancarlo. Yes, yes. Oh, that was fun too. That was that was fantastic for, on so many levels for me because um, I mean I I got to know you through the role through you playing that role, and uh, as I got to know you even more, I was like I was like this guy is like he's the sweetest guy. He's like this this 
he's a puppy. He's a sweet guy. He's a funny guy. He's a thoughtful guy. And here he is playing this complete uh, dickhead, like this in a really believable way. I think I think there's something to that. Yeah. Well, that's what's fun about act. That's what the appeal is for so many people for acting is that it really lets you just go and inhabit someone completely different. Yeah. And you let that you kind of rent out your body and soul to that other character for a few minutes or a few hours or whatever it is. Okay. But you're a really and, calm, like kind of sort of chill guy, you know, very laid back. Yeah, most of the time. I mean, but, I can I can explode under the right circumstances, but but basically, I'm. But pretty, you played it very like there's there's some parallels between that and a very arrogant mob boss. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, also. a lot of mob bosses are very laid back because they don't yeah. because that's how you show control, right? You don't right. you don't lose your temper, you don't get all worked up. You let your henchmen do that for you. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, that's why uh, Vinny Rizzo, right? Yeah. And uh, Giancarlo. Giancarlo was so brilliant in that. It was just amazing. Uh, <laughs> Isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he we've had him on the too. show. Uh, and, and, and I think now if people watch the movie, they'll realize how close to, the, to, to Vinny Rizzo he actually is in terms of character. But he did a brilliant job. Yeah. He was on point. And the chemistry between the two of you was great, too. Yeah, well, I mean, we're we're yeah. sort of we, on screen. We were we were sort of polar opposites in so many ways, but it, we we complemented each other really well. I thought. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed that. So, uh, when did you get into acting? Like, what what drew you to to do acting? Um, I, I the first time I did acting, uh, any real acting, was back in Sejep uh, Junior College when I I performed in a play called uh, Bits of Lenny Bruce. Okay. Mrs. Schneider's son. It was this was at Vanier College, and uh, the director Danny Brennan he he took transcripts of Lenny Bruce nightclub performances, and he basically adapted it for the stage because Lenny Bruce used to go on stage and and do like four or five different characters He's at a once. Legend. Just just He's by a... changing his voice, he would play play all these characters at once. So so Danny took this and he kind of. A, broke it out into four or five actors on stage and so it was just the most amazing material to work with and because uh, the characters were outrageous and uh, I remember one of the one of the roles I played was uh, of a talent agent who recognizes Adolf Hitler as a potential dictator okay and he's actually you know Adolf is just painting houses or something and this guy comes along and goes, hey you there you there with the paint stick come here I want to talk to you have you ever thought about being a dictator? <laughs> and um, so just, just brilliant, brilliant stuff. All kinds of brilliant sketches that were that were broken up into characters. And was it the comedy factor that attracted you, or the, the uh, yeah? But it was also it was you know he was the Monty Python of his day in a way. He was just just took taking the Lady piss Bruce. out of it. yeah yeah he was taking the piss icon. out of everyone yeah. and doing it brilliantly and. Uh, so that was my first sort of stage experience, and then I didn't really do an awful lot of acting then, and uh, again until until I started doing my own music videos in the '80s. That was another thing. I, when all these new wave bands were coming out, I started doing my own music tracks, and I did a music video called "Monkey Up," which was a, a, a dance music themed on uh, expressing Darwin's theories of evolution as a professor. And meanwhile, the professor de-evolves into an ape, back into an ape. So by the end of the video, he's devolved from a professor to an ape. So that was fun. 
and that involved a certain amount of acting but I never really did any any more stage acting or anything and and I didn't get back into it until uh, I answered a Facebook ad for an audition for this show Mohawk Girls and the pilot episode of that it's funny to think that was like five years ago now, back two thousand nine or. Well, it's it's 10, like it's an establishment now, right? It's it's yeah, kind of... it's a it's a series that runs on APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, and it's directed by Tracy Deer, who's a brilliant uh, director and creative force, and uh, she and Cynthia Knight put together this show about these four Mohawk women in Ganawagi who are searching for life's answers and the and life's loves and all kinds of stuff and trying to figure and and i auditioned for the part of this crazy internet dater <laughs> okay uh who puts a profile on the on the dating website called uh, res love oh nice and uh it was a totally <laughs> it was a totally crazy part and i just did the audition on a whim but they happened to to like it and in fact they liked my audition enough that they wanted him to become this sort of recurring, recurring character mm -hmm. I mean, this is your. Is this the first Native American made, uh, like, drum, no, I wouldn't say dramatic, like soap? Is it like a soap opera? No, there's the, if, you, if you go to the APTN website and click on full episode, there's a tab called full episodes, and you can see there's this big long list of shows produced that are, you know, there's comedies, there's dramas, there's documentaries, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But I, I mean, um, I remember, like, in the, uh, when I was a kid, I remember, like, North of 60. Uh, and there was a couple of other these shows that were Native American shows. They were very mm. interesting to me because I didn't know what the deal was at all. I was just right. like, I, I thought these Native Americans were way up north somewhere. Yeah, like, well, there's there's some cool shows on AP10. Like there's uh, um, Blackstone and Cashing In and Moccasin. Is it Moccasin Flats? I can't remember all the names of all these shows. But anyway, Moccasin uh, Flats. I'm sorry. That's 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 adorable. <laughs> um. So, uh, so I had a, a, it was a very small bit part on that, but it was enough to get me into the actors union and that was uh, great. And so since then I've, I've since got an agent and I've been doing a lot of auditions, but so far no real solid paying, well, a few, a few small paying gigs, but nothing really okay. regular. You know? I'm guessing Mohawk Girls has like a following, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's been very well received actually, critically and and, uh, and popularly. It's been uh, by natives or are, are other people watching? Well, I mean, it's it it airs on APTN and also on the Omni network. So um, I haven't kept track of the actual viewing statistics okay. or whatever, but uh, it's um, it's been pretty well received. Have you interacted with any fans, like any any people who are uh, not well? If, only like when I go to the Ganawage Reserve, some people will sort of say, hey, it's oh, the I know guy. you, aren't you that guy? You know, so. Okay, that's cool. But uh, I don't get stopped for autographs on uh, St. Catherine Street or anything like right. that. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe tomorrow. But uh, leave it to me. Okay. <laughs> Only a matter of time. I'll get you there. I'll get you there. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed tremendously working with James. Uh, I, I just remember thinking how different a vibe you had from Sean and from um, Sean Bechu and from uh, Giancarlo but it I don't know I just felt it was really easy to talk to you and just to, to paint the picture for you and you seem to just take to it and you're like okay a little more of this okay I'll do a little bit more of this well it's fun to play the bad guy it really is because uh, you know like yeah. I say it gets it lets you it lets you inhabit that other side of the uh, 
If I were an actor, that's I would I would just I would tell my agent like I want villain roles. Yeah, not only just like a bad guy, you were like the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, and the isn't boss. that? I mean, well, I mean, the whole film, the, the whole script, and everything was really well put together. It was uh, it was very solid. There was no, it wasn't a no nonsense. It was believable. You know, like all the characters were believable, and um, it wasn't just some silly student film that. Uh, Features a terrible script. It was really well written and well directed and well shot. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So with like a cartoon. So I, I mean, I was lucky. I was lucky to be in with that crew of people because you know a lot of independent films are sort of like. Eh. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't feel cartoonish at all. Didn't. No. Like you, like as you being the bad guy, it didn't it didn't seem like you were like. Meh. No. Like but that. he did uh, he did crack me up though and even when i watch it today i occasionally sit down and watch it just to see what it's like after a couple of years and i can see your comedic potential like i see that you're like barely restraining your you've had to i felt like you had to pull back sometimes because mm-hmm. it would have been very easy to just go off and make it really silly right away in a very fun way mm-hmm. Uh, just like when you're, you know, just pleading for for your life and all that, like you did it seriously and it was believable. But I could tell, like how, f- I was just like, I wish we would have had the time to do outtakes because they could have been a real <laughs> blooper reel there of uh, James. And it was also really, I keep having this image of James walking around the set during the like setups and the the delays. Yeah. With his leg completely drenched in blood and his face mangled right with makeup. And he's supposed to be like really beat up, really shot up, but he's just sort of walking around and he's like eating some carrots at the, the <laughs> crafts table. But his leg is like, it looks like he took a shotgun shell to it and he's got a little piece of saran wrap around him. He's just like, so how's it going? With his like forehead, forehead split open, right? With uh, special effects makeup. That was a good time. Would you yeah, do it again? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to... Uh... I'd love to be the villain. Although most of the auditions I've been getting are for are for the other side of the law. It's like for FBI agents and stuff really? like that. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. and and is it? I mean, I'm I'm sure that would be interesting too. You could make. Oh that. yeah, no. Uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm game for anything actually because you never know what is going to come up. You never know what people are going to expect from you. Hmm. So uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting challenge to be able to take on anything, whether it's a bad guy or whether it's a law enforcement officer or, or something in between. Like I, I auditioned for, um, you know, that series, The Art of More, about the uh, art forgery industry. Uh, I auditioned for the part of a German art forger. I can like totally see you doing that. I can do I see you in that role right now. Well, yes. It's like you know, he wants to know you want what do you want him to paint? How much? How much? Of, like, of course, the in in the in the film or in the series, they he's supposed to have like long, stringy blonde hair, which I didn't. I didn't have the wig for that, but I went to the audition anyway, and so okay, well, <laughs> with like the magnifying glasses and the, the lenses and stuff <laughs> but it's cool but fortunately i i enjoy auditioning because it's almost like putting on a little miniature play that lasts like a, true. a minute and a half but yeah. but you but there's a real audience you know there's an actual real audience who counts and is really watching you closely and and then after 90 seconds it's it's over <laughs> how tough is it to, to have to put it on like turn it on in that environment uh, well, I'm getting a lot more used to it now. At first, I was quite nervous, uh, but I actually took some audition courses with uh, 
a teacher by the name of Chip Chipka, who is one of the better actors in town. In fact, I just saw him the other day in that play Butcher at the Centaur. Very, very good play. Um, he and uh, also this actress by the name of Stephanie Buxton, who's also, she's extremely good, very, very good actress and very good teacher. So between those two, uh, I got a lot of really good training in audition technique. And uh, they, there's a course called Scene Camera, where they you explore like what it's like to act specifically for camera. And um, also courses uh, called Behavior, which breaks down the level of a character's status from very low to very high on a scale of one to ten. So if you're a if you're a one, you're basically like a comatose body lying on the floor. And if you're a ten, you're kind of like Jim the, the god Thor or something. Oh, okay. So so from one to ten you have all these different levels of status and how you carry yourself and how you interact with people and and it's a very convenient way of gauging like okay how what am I going to be in this audition? Am I a Am I a five? Am I a six? Uh, am I an? And then you get into levels like maybe this character is a, maybe on the inside he's a five, maybe kind of nervous, and maybe but on the outside he's trying to be an eight, like really dominant. So yes. what does that look like when you when you're a five inside and an eight outside? What is what is that like? You know, mm, interesting. So yeah, the the whole audition thing, uh, concept is incredibly brutal. Yeah, um, it's a weird like kind of. Sterile it's, it's, environment. It's the most. Like it's the most well, all all acting scenarios are basically unnatural, especially film sets, because it's, film set is an incredibly unnatural place to to be trying to act. It's natural. a horrible place for an actor. But auditions are even more strange that way because it's the most it's the most artificial environment ever to try and behave as if you're. They're almost checking your teeth, like like a like <laughs> an old school slave. Like, there's usually well, from what I've seen, there's usually like two people and a camcorder in the room and they're, yeah. they're hearing the same lines come out of everybody else who's come before and who are going to come after you mm -hmm. and so one of the things they're looking for is they want to they want to be surprised right that's what they that's what i've learned over the course of many surprised by your, your they, they your... want to be surprised they want you to present something that they've never seen before from a different from any other actor what do you what do you bring to this role that no one else does? So you're differentiating mm. yourself. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Jeez. No pressure. So right. so you have to you know you have to. Kind well, you of don't know what the other actors are doing. No, but you want to you want to kind of you generally you want to avoid the cliches. You want to you want to play opposites. Like if if uh, if it's if it's a scene where someone's really angry. Maybe instead of raising your voice and throwing a tantrum, you want to show anger in a very quiet way. You know, how would you do that? Okay. How would you, how would you, you know, maybe it's all in your eyes and, and, and your voice is very low, maybe even a whisper, you know, that kind of thing. Like you, you, it's, your job as an actor is to bring something to the role that the, that the auditioner is not really expecting, that something that works, something that isn't just the typical cliche way of approaching it sure mm -hmm. sure so they must but that must elicit all kinds of in, insane behaviors from certain actors right like <laughs> climbing sure. on top of the audition table and like spittle in the face of the like grabbing them by the shirt and then going completely crazy <laughs> well it's a balancing act right you want to bring something new but 
it does it still has to be believable sure it still has to be believable. i was just like the, the scenario i was picturing is you waiting outside with the script you know and you're just going over it and you're waiting for your turn and you just hear these sounds coming from the room like, <laughs> <laughs> door opens and like some guy came okay, with like tearaway pants tearaway pants just like the end of it like <laughs> a guy comes out with like a he's dressed like a tulip from like a from like a toddler yeah. uh, school play or whatever. Feel free to use any of these ideas for your yes. future auditions. Must jotting them all yeah. down. Yes. <laughs> okay. So what was the okay? Give us the story. What's the, what's the weirdest audition you've ever been in? The weirdest audition. Uh, the weirdest audition I think was for. Uh, it was an episode of. And what was the show? I can't even remember what the show was, but it was I had to I had to show how I would break my neck. Like somebody like it's a scene, it was a scene in a cemetery where somebody grabs me and breaks my neck. So they had to like throw me to the ground and I had to make it look convincing like my neck was gonna be broken. Okay, so you just had to fall down a bunch of times. You time? had to fall down, you had to make certain noises, you had to fall down convincingly. Um how they judge the various seriously what are the metrics on that <laughs> i don't know it's it very simple it wasn't it wasn't that complicated but you know they're auditioning like 10 or 15 people to see who can do the most convincing broken neck or whatever so <laughs> fortunately i had uh i had taken a stage combat course with sean with sean bechu and right. uh, that was great so that helped prepare it me. covers neck breaking in the second it does part yeah it, it yes. does Really? Uh, this was a different style of neck breaking, but um, right. but nevertheless, it got like I, it, it it primed me for the fact that you know sometimes acting involves weird stuff like stage combat. Yeah, we, lesson one: don't make the breaking sound with your mouth. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> no, you actually use the, the the convincing sound for breaking neck is to crumple a plastic drinking bottle. Oh yeah, uh-huh. that makes sense. Giving away secrets. Oh, yeah, man. You heard it here first. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so you may be hunted after the show. <laughs> we, we appreciate your sacrifice. Okay. Did yeah. you have a Did you have a plastic water bottle with uh, you? I uh, no, I did. I sh- maybe I should have, but um, no, I didn't. I didn't it's such it. a weird environment, you know. I mean, and now I'm thinking about it I'm, with social media and everything. It seems like everybody's auditioning all the time. There's just no role. <laughs> There's no role actually for anybody. They're auditioning for like their own identity. Yeah, to play themselves in their own movie. Exactly. On on you're, their own profile you're, page. You're, you're auditioning to be Jason. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, starring Jason, written by. This is what you get the role. You got it. You Thanks. got a kid. Thanks. You got the stuff. Well, you Never play. Let's you do lunch. He's auditioning right now for his talk show, which is going to go on TV. Like when? When does it go on TV? Any minute now. It's only a matter of time. And you, Richard, uh, playing Richard, uh, we're we're gonna have to we're gonna call you back. You did great, though. <laughs> we'll we'll get back to you. Thanks, okay? thanks. But yeah, uh, we want we'll you to know touch. that we're very enthusiastic. <laughs> we think you may be our Richard. <laughs> it's between you and Danny. And Daddy, exactly. <laughs> no, but what a what an absolute like short of being uh, cast in modeling for fashion, where they're probably going up to you with little surgical instrument and pinching the skin on your ass right and like writing it down on paper hmm. and like checking your teeth literally like like some sort of slave or a horse right um i can't think of a more brutally um pressurized situation than having to just go in cold into this room with these people have heard it a million times and they're like okay okay welcome james okay so what we're doing is 
and, and it's then, so subjective too like yeah you're you're putting yourselves at you're, you're putting yourself at the mercy of these people and everybody's gonna have a different opinion right? well fortunately for me i'm not dependent on acting for a living so that that helps me to have the confidence to just say you know what if i don't get this role who gives a shit? Yeah, there's another right. there's, a, there's another audition coming along, and you kind of have to have that attitude because if your feelings are hurt every time you don't get hired, then like you're Jesus, in the wrong business. Give up now. Give up. Because the ratio, even for successful working actors, I mean, the ratio of audition to paid gig is can be anywhere from twenty to one to forty to one to fifty to one. Like you got to be ready to do an awful lot of auditions. Yeah. Yeah, mm. and even the successful ones, like you, you still see them in commercials. So, so, and just the quantity alone, after a while, it kind of numbs you. Like you, you stop being nervous and you stop being freaked out by the notion of doing an audition, just because you know you're going to be doing tons of them anyway. Right. So, why get upset about it? You know, sure. unless it's a role that you think like. The, there's been a couple of times where I thought, oh man, I would be absolutely perfect for this role. <laughs> I gotta get this role. What was that role? Uh, well, the well, actually, the German painter was one of them. I thought I am perfect for this role. There's nobody in this role. <laughs> that was one of them. Um, there were, uh, there was also for a gaming. There was a gaming audition where I was supposed to be like this Cockney, uh, you know, character from the uh, 1800s who's like a scoundrel. You know, he's like he's, he's running around. He's like, he's a thief. And, uh, you know, I thought, I thought man, this, I could do this so well. This I, is like I, voice acting you would be doing? It would have been, well, voice and motion capture. Right. Mm. But I thought, man, this is great. But even then I've realized, you know, even if you can do voices or accents from different countries, in this town, it's like it doesn't really give you that much advantage no, because melting there pot. are so many expat actors from so many countries living in this city that it doesn't matter what you need, like British voice, Italian, Asian, Pakistan, you name it. There's always some out-of-work actor from that country who's living here. Well, we were talking to uh, Giancarlo a few episodes ago, and he was talking about his experience with, with acting. And he had said that being Anglophone uh, in Canada, in Quebec, that he'd kind of put his stuff on on the back burner just because there wasn't enough opportunity and that he didn't want to be doing Tim Hortons commercials for the rest of his life and that's mm -hmm. why he opened up his uh, his store on on Saint Denis uh, Shea Geeks Shea Geeks plug in yeah. plug uh, have you felt a bit of the same like do you do you feel like there's a lack of opportunity uh, well like I say because I'm not dependent on acting for a living it it's more of like uh, for me it's a really uh, fun interesting kind of hobby at the moment but hmm. I do take it seriously like when I go to an audition I go there to get hired but yeah sure it would be great to have the kind of quantity of work that you find in Toronto or Vancouver but it's just you know I'm I'm I've, I grew up in this town it's my town I don't really want to leave this town so yeah. uh, I'm willing to um, I'm willing to keep keep at it how would you uh, feel about a Tim Hortons commercial um, it would. You know what? It would. It depends on the humor of the commercial. Like I've I've done I've done a lot of auditions for commercials, and most of the auditions I've done have actually been like they've they've actually been fun. You know, the the script is fun, the scenario is fun. Mm. I don't mind doing commercials uh, that have a fun script like that. You know, that have some humor that yeah, you're that not are just witty. Going, 
you're like Midas has the best blah blah blah, blah right like actually there's a yeah because I'm not I'm not like I don't have a philosophical problem with the idea of advertising um, if, if it's if it's a hokey commercial I might not feel so enthusiastic about doing it but um, yeah. yeah if you're like you dressed know, up as a foot because it's a cream and <laughs> yeah. then you're a big foot but like I did a I did a, a audition for an air transat commercial the other day and it was a fun little scenario very witty I've done lotto 649 auditions and okay. they're they're always fun and you know yeah, yeah. so I, w- I don't mind doing things like that I think it would be it would be kind of cool hmm. uh, but for commercials it's all about whether they just like the look of you and, and it's, right. it's it's very they're all designed by committee and there there has to be a committee of 20 people who all love you otherwise uh, it always comes otherwise down to you that. Ain't it always it. comes down to that no matter what metrics they they pretend to hold you know themselves to uh, there's like a handful I think of auditions where those are actually being enforced because they're backed by somebody who really knows exactly what he's looking for mm-hmm. or she um, but most of the time yeah do they like the look of you do they not like the look of you oh that was a, I did a I did an audition for a Hershey's chocolate uh, box set of chocolates and it was I thought that was the role that I should have got because it was a, kind of a James Bond type character okay. in a white tux and the finishing line of the script was well played James can you imagine if I'd gotten that oh my that? god that's, that's, that's all my friends would have freaked going well played James <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a shoe in that would have been absolutely perfect yeah so <laughs> When I watch commercials, I obviously realize that even actors like uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, you know, he's, he's still popping up in uh, Capital One ads. Mm-hmm. You know, and, is he really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, clearly, it's I a don't pay, watch TV. At it's all. a payday at this no point. But like here and there, when I see a TV commercial, the odd TV commercial, yeah. I'll see him pop up or some really well-known actor in a in a credit card commercial. Generally, like Robert De Niro will show up in a Visa commercial or some shit. Uh, and it's clearly just a payday. Isn't right? Danny DeVito and George Clooney in a commercial these days? Aren't they? Aren't they plugging something? I forget what That's it was. Possible, but I, I would I would guess that those guys know exactly what they're doing, and it's like <laughs> tongue in cheek, and there's something to it. They're probably giving the money to charity or something. You know, mm-hmm. like those guys yeah. with uh, "It's Always Sunny" and uh, and Clooney Fuck being Clooney being uh, the kind of offbeat non-traditional Hollywood star, I would say that uh, that's less. No, what I always what always hits me is when I'm like, okay, as an actor, you got to take the work that comes your way and you got to be able to pay your dues and all that other stuff. But it's when I see somebody playing the 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 guy or the girl in like a uh, an STD commercial, you know, like one of those American like, don't you hate it when you're when your herpes act up like one of those ads and then you got to be like the person with herpes running in the park with the golden retriever and then you turn around and like ever since I took Zenazakasat 4 you know my quality of life has just been better you're like that's that's a human being with that does not have herpes that, that has a life they wanted to act and to make it in this business and at this particular point they gotta pretend to either have a fungus some some terrible condition right Something in their butt, something on their <laughs> athlete's foot, something on their face, and they got to play with a straight face, right? Yeah. Like you know, and I'm like that to me is like either 
a testament to their dedication to the art form or <laughs> Jesus you poor bastard that, that is exactly. sheer professionalism sheer, I want to yeah. think that it's sheer professionalism but in the United States I mean if, if it's bad here imagine how many actors there are how many actors do you think there I can't are? even imagine what the, the audition process is you know like I really want you to believe that I have herpes right you know, like as opposed to breaking your neck just like yeah um, <laughs> we really want you to sell us yeah. on the fact that you have herpes simply stay yeah <laughs> And how that differs from like syphilis or whatever right. else. Like you're giving us gonorrhea right now, yeah, and we, we really need more. herpes. Yeah. Can you give us more herpes? Okay, more okay, herpes. okay. Yeah. Can I have that pepperoni there on the table? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna wow you. I need, I need. Give, I me, need, a give yeah. me a slice of pepperoni. <laughs> I'm not sure what that has to do with anything, but and scene, and scene. <laughs> but it's it's like uh, it's a whole life. I love films. I love movies. <laughs> I, I'm an animated individual, but I've never wanted to be in front of the camera for that very reason because I, I'm terrified of. You're terrified of herpes. Of herpes, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> let's end the show that way right now. Herpes, herpes, herpes. <laughs> no, but seriously, like I admire, I admire actors uh, tremendously. To be judged like that continually. And then if you make it, get ready to be judged on these 50-foot screens where every imperfection in your skin, your face, every weirdness about you, um, if you're overweight, if you're skinny or whatever, it's just blown up to a hundredfold and everyone's looking at your nose or everyone's looking at your eyebrow, your weird eyebrow hair, or right? Like, I mean, unless you don't think about it. I understand basically why some actors just refuse to I watch I think it their, takes a certain amount of arrogance. I don't know if it's the right word. Arrogance. Vanity, maybe? It's more arrogance to say, I'm going to do this character this way. Not that way. I'm going to do it this way. And, um, you know, you make that decision. That's, I guess, what they mean about making choices. Like, I'm, I choose, this, this is who this character is. And you may think differently, but as far as I'm concerned, that's who this person is. Right. And so if you don't like it, well, tough shit. Well, of course, the, the comedy of this situation goes even further, right? Because if there's a person acting as a herpes person, a person with herpes, somebody directed this scene, right? And that's hilarious. Thinking about a director, <laughs> actually, you're like, cut, 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 right? And like actually feeling the need to like, no, 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 listen, I'm going to be in my trailer. I'm, I'm walking off the set right now if you do not give me herpes. <laughs> if you do not give me herpes right now... I'm walking off the set, right? And then, like, you laugh I'm at... I'm not feeling the herpes. You're not convincing me, right? And as funny as that is, then I start to think some poor writer got this contract huh. and had to write this mayonnaise... And like, they're probably having to rewrite it during the shoot because, right. the direct, because the producer and the client are over, looking over their shoulder going, I'm not feeling the herpes either. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not feeling the herpes. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'm sure it's happened that some director like really thought that this was their one chance and went diva on everyone on like a, a standard herpes commercial or like an athlete's foot cream thing. They want they want all like you don't understand the character. <laughs> They're like Joe, Joe. It's it's a uh, it's a uh, preparation age. Okay, we just need you to like. Okay, you know what this does? This is a cream, and it goes in your butt. Okay, just like go. Can you just do the script? No, I'm an artist. Like, yeah, well, here, this is no place for. What's artists. my motivation? What's my motivation? Yeah, you know, actors do that too, probably. Right? Mm -hmm. Get get all carried away with. Something. Motivation is that your butt itches. <laughs> That's right. Come here. 
Wait, is my butt itching right now, or do I feel better after having taken the preparation That's age? Right. I need this information. Yeah. I need How to see my the butt itch feeling? on the other cheek. Yes. I've this, is uh, it, is the, the pain more to the right, more to the left? I wanted to play this character from the perspective of the itch. <laughs> <laughs> like somebody just... You know? Let's just turn it around. Let's, Let's turn, just it around. turn it on its head. Are you Let's with go me? back to the drawing board. Are, we, are you with me here? Are you with me? Right. I'm Wiley Coyote, okay? I'm by battling the forces of nature. Like, what, what the fuck? Get this guy off the set. Okay, so James... Um, if you could pick your ideal role right now, like what's a dream role? Is there such a thing? Um, I think I'm pretty well suited to playing the bad guy. Okay. So So villains. Villains are, villains are probably at the top of the list. Okay. But close second would be, uh, I'm I'm very curious now to not having done auditions for all these FBI agent roles, I would I would like to play a kind of a modern Sherlock Holmes type. Okay, like a you know, G-Man or like and a investigator. between those two. Like, I could see. You well, they're they're both interesting. Of those. Yeah, it's an interesting. They're they're like they're the opposite sides of the coin, right? Yeah, and especially and, in the case of Sherlock, he's essentially. Uh, I mean, there was a great. Do you remember, do you remember that scene in The Sopranos where uh, where Tony Soprano meets the FBI agent who is also from the same? They have, they have the same heritage, like the the, the FBI guy is also Italian and and they actually at one point he actually says you and I are for the same heritage aren't we right and they're on completely opposite sides of the coin uh-huh. but but either of those two characters would have been really cool to play right right because so, they're essentially the same person but who turned out differently yeah uh, the other thing that I would be interested in doing is uh, uh, like about 10 or 12 years ago I actually put together a sketch comedy pilot called viewer discretion I actually worked with some actors from the on the spot improv group and we put together this somewhat python-esque uh uh, sketch comedy demo that was well it started off as a half hour and then it got trimmed down to 15 minutes really like i've always loved surreal humor you know like kids in the hall type stuff and uh little britain and python and yeah okay like the stuff that's really off Off the the wall yeah yeah, i love that stuff and so the Mitch and Webb look, but I, I'm not. I'm not about to. I'm not about to expect anyone to kind of like cast me in that. It would have to be something that I would write and produce. Do you write? Do, do you do you like writing? Well, I did. Like I wrote some of the material for that uh, demo, and it was fun. And we shop. We tried to shop it around. We we actually met with some the comedy department from CBC and a couple of other people, and they didn't really end up, uh, you know, signing on. But um, but it was it was really fun to put together, even though it was it was a ton of work because it was all self financed and self produced and everything. I don't know how, what that's like at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that is another thing that I would be interested in doing. But it's just you know it's 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 a colossal amount of work actually to do that, even just to do a demo. Never mind a real you know high production value yes pilot. So I'm not sure if that will ever happen again. Uh, I would love for it to happen, but I just don't know. Uh, so those are my sort of top picks of what I would like to do. Okay. Uh, so com- comedy in some way or fashion is also some, one of your loves. Yeah, right? absolutely. Comedy is a great release as well. This, this ca- the character that I play on Mohawk Girls is a sort of somewhat outrageous comic relief type character who props up, cops up, you know, shows up every once in a while, pops out of the woodwork and, and, uh, and then disappears again. So. 
Cool. All right. Well, um, is there anything you'd like to plug while uh, while while you're on? Uh, the show? Well, I just I forgot to mention the the, the acting courses I was taking was. Um, um, at a place called ASM Studios, which is on Stanley. It's run by Chip Chipka, and um, I love that name, Chip Chipka. Yeah, he's a, he's a really really excellent actor. He's he's got uh, a huge resume of uh, you know, uh, stage and film and TV roles. Um, so if anyone's looking for really good acting courses, uh, check out ASM. I think it's asmstudios.net or anyway, just do a Google search for mm-hmm. ASM. We'll, we'll put the link in the description. This is the same. Send it over to us. Is this the same place where you can also sign up for uh, those uh, stage combat classes? Uh, as a matter of fact, yes. Sean Bechu uh, teaches stage combat at ASM. So if you check out their website, you can you can see when the uh, when the courses begin. They, every few months they start over, I believe. Um, so yeah, check that out. Uh, my acting website is just jamesmalloc.tv. That's M-A-L-L-O-C-H. Okay. Dot TV, so you can check that out. Yeah, we'll be ma- we'll make sure to put those uh, those links up there. Make sure that people can check you out. And uh, uh, for those of you listening, for all my powerful Hollywood friends, uh, you know, tuning into the show, uh, you know, get to work. Put this man put this man to work because uh, I can. Va- I will. I would definitely vouch for him. And, uh, Check out The Punisher, No Mercy on YouTube, which has now passed 400,000 views. Has it? It has. 400,000? Yeah, it's on two different YouTube. Jeez, I haven't checked that yeah. in such a long time. Now, which is, for an 18-minute film, that's pretty good. Because on most, YouTube? Most people, yeah. most people don't want to watch anything more than like a minute or two. Barely, yeah. <laughs> but 18 minutes, yeah, that's, a, that's not bad. 18 minutes of badassery. Badassery. Yeah. Well, it was a tremendous amount of uh, pleasure to have you on the show. To work with you, please, I hope you'll come back. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, as we Thanks often say, we, uh, we kind of you know focus on you, really you and what you're about at the first time around, but then you come back and you shoot the shit with us and get wild. And uh, yeah, definitely, please I come back. I look forward to it. Help us out by uh, going on to our iTunes, uh, subscribe, uh, leave us a review, leave us a rating. And uh, leave us a comment anywhere, like on, on Facebook or on SoundCloud. But basically, the, the iTunes reviews and the ratings are the best. Yeah, visibility is what we're after. We want to get our message out. We want to get the show out there. So the way we can do that is to raise a profile. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's something that we can, uh, you guys can really help us with by just doing something as simple as commenting, liking or you know what hating like that's fine as well like as long as you guys are um just telling us how you feel about the show that's that means that people are listening to it and that means it's it has some sort of um vibe